Let's open our Bibles to the second to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Zechariah, leading up to Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Even though we've already done two studies um, in Zechariah, last Sunday we did chapter 12 because it dealt with um, Jerusalem becoming that cup of trembling or drunkenness to the world, and we see that unfolding, and the effect that uh, President Trump's announcement that he's moving the uh, embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, we spent a little bit of time showing the world's reaction, the UN's reaction to that announcement. <clears throat> since, since then, uh, just to keep you sort of out of cutting edge, you're probably watching this anyway, is the, um, the protests that are going and taking place in Iran right now uh, over the poverty, a lot of uh, demonstrations. And protocol for the um, Iranian leadership is to be extremely heavy-handed to the point of death. And um, Trump is telling us we're watching you. You better not repeat what you guys usually do with uh, your protocol for measures in the past. So all that to say that um, the Lord is right on track with his plan for his purposes. As we're going to see in our study tonight, again, um, Zechariah is repeating a lot of what Ezekiel prophesied about, certainly what Daniel prophesied about. Uh, Zechariah is unique. His name means Jehovah remembers. In verse 1, he's identified as the son of uh, Berechiah, which means Jehovah blesses. And his father was the son of Ido, which means the appointed time. And um, certainly God is going to remember his, his timing uh, as it pertains to their time that they were in the Babylonian captivity. They were there for 70 years. And then he's going to be, after we get through with Malachi, God is not going to speak through the prophets for 400 years. It wouldn't be till John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, would have been, they sort of did a rotation type deal. Uh, if you were a Levite and you were able to serve in the temple, it was sort of a rotation. And it was um, Zacharias's time to be in the temple. He was right before the uh, altar of incense when uh, the angel uh, appeared to him and spoke to him. And um, he was foretelling the coming of his son, John the Baptist, who was filled, it says, with the Spirit, while he was still in his mother's womb. And so we're, we're working up to that. The time date here uh, that Zechariah is ministering is um, while the temple is being built, when the decree was given that they could leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem, almost a little less than 50,000 people went. And um, they got discouraged real quickly um, instead of working on the temple, which would, should have been their primary goal, uh, they were working on their own houses, doing their own thing. And between Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, certainly Zechariah, he here is going to be used 
to um, try to encourage these guys to keep their priorities because God has a plan. And that is going, we're going to go through three chapters tonight. I Earlier I said four, but as I got studying today, I just thought there's too much here, and I don't want to rush through chapter four, which is a chapter we've already done, but um, on a Sunday morning. So even though we've had two messages in Zechariah, now we're going to go back and do it verse by verse. And the first six chapters here are messianic and millennial. What does that mean? Well, messianic in that it's going to point to this man on on riding a red horse that is identified in chapter 3, verse 8 as the branch. And um, you have to sort of connect some scriptures with other scriptures to come up with a a definite statement that this is none other than a pre-incarnate of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, Christophanes, we call them, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord. And, well, you say, how can you know for sure? Because it says an angel or it says a man. Because other scriptures bring clarification And um, that's how we connect those dots so we can be certain that what we have in view tonight is um, not only that, but the kingdoms that have gone before, the kingdoms that are going to come after, and then the one that's going to last forever. All that's in the first three chapters of the book of Zechariah. So it's during this period of time uh, that he's going to have ten visions the Lord's going to give him. And they all happened in the same evening. So he didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night. And he got up and, you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so as we read these uh, in the first six chapters here, uh, we're going to be going through these visions and um, giving you the interpretation of them. And I guess the main thing that I'd want you to think of is... Um, You know, Dylan said it best in a saved album. We have our plans. But uh, Dylan says, you know, he's got plans of his own to set up his throne. You know, God has his own plans. We often pray for things. Lord, if you'll do this, this, and this for me, then I'll do this, this, and this for you. But that's not the way to pray. pray. The way to pray is that the Lord has a purpose and a plan, sometimes I say plan A, plan B, plan C, for your life. And um, um, the idea is finding out, Lord, what have you preordained for me to fill out? As it says in Psalm 139, David understood this. He said, before I was even conceived in my mother's womb, you had all the days laid out for me. And um, I don't think one of those days that God wanted for David was to have an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then to cover his tracks, kill Uriah the Hittite. I don't think that was plan A. <laughs> but nonetheless, it happened. There were consequences. A child died. But God then used the next son, Solomon, to be the wisest man who ever walked the planet, and was allowed to build the temple. So what we have here, and something only the Bible can do, is to, what I like to call, keep us 
centered on true north, what direction the Lord wants us to go in. And that's on the narrow way. It's the narrow way. It's not our way. And that's the problem with the church today. The church is trying to satisfy the people with what the Lord can do for you. Well, he can. He can give you fullness of joy, and he can be your comfort. But he also has a purpose and a plan. And um, with that little bit of an introduction, as we look at chapter 1, we find that it opens with an appeal for the people uh, to repent. Now, remember that they've already had their woodshed experience in Babylon for 70 years. And there was a lot more than 50,000 people living in Babylon. A lot of people settled in. I think Americans are, it can be dangerous to be in an, in an environment that is uh, too comfortable. And um, unless the Lord shakes things up uh, from time to time, um, Matter of fact, he even told the scripture about it, pruning the branches. They need to be pruned. And if it's not pruned, then it won't bring forth as much fruit. But, you know, I go to Door County and you see the apple orchards out there and you see, see them in the springtime and they're out there pruning. Well, why are they doing that? Well, so that'll bring forth more fruit. So it's true for us in the spiritual life and our walks with the Lord that the Lord, to keep us fruitful, from time to time, we'll do a pruning. And uh, then it says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial or the pruning. Don't think it's a strange thing. It's a natural thing. It's a necessary part of uh, the Lord, you know, rubbing off the rough edges so that you can be more fruitful. The thing is that you don't get weary in the process. So that's what... At verses 1 through 6 of Zechariah, that's what he's doing. He's calling them back to get back to work. The people did not have a mind to work as we begin this. So if we would break the, the book up in uh, chapters uh, 1 through 8, uh, it's while they're building the temple. And in chapters 9 through 14, it's after building the temple. And we find here in verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, now these would have been the Medes and the Persians, their empire at that time, that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, Well, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I command my servant, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And so they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And thus we have the first six verses, and he's basically 
he's saying, don't make the same mistakes they've made. They went into captivity because Jeremiah would come to them and said, you guys are worse off than the people that were in the land before. You need to repent, and if you don't, I, I will take you into captivity. I will shake things up, and um, hopefully you'll come to your senses. But they're back. Imagine, you know, being gone, you know, um, 70 years is a, pretty much a lifetime. God says he's given man three score and ten. That's 70 years. So here's a whole generation, uh, and, you know, they heard about Jerusalem, the ones that are, are now coming back. But what, what do they come back to? A city that lays in ruins, temple completely destroyed. And um, so as we look at the first six verses, uh, Zechariah is basically saying, let's not start over in this building project by re- making the mistakes that your fathers made. And basically they were self-centered building their own homes, and the temple wasn't being rebuilt. And so, sort of a shot over the bow, so to speak, by Zechariah, before he dives into his first prophecy, or his first dream or vision that that he had, which is 7 through um, 17, and it's the horses among the myrtle trees. And we're introduced now after the warning in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of, excuse me, Ido, the prophet. He says, I saw by night. So we're not really clear. Is this a dream or is this a vision? Or was this something that he was awake and actually had it revealed to him, uh, much like John in the book of Revelation. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Now, what I want to point out to you here, where we can start with the identity of who is the rider on this red horse, when he said, my Lord, what are these? Every other time that a human gives any sort of acknowledgement of worship to that angel, the angel immediately rebukes that person. And he says, get up off the ground, or something like that. And um, it happened, The only a good example of where this happened again is the night that Joshua was getting ready to take Jericho. And all of a sudden the Lord shows up. He says, who are you? He says, I'm the commander of the Lord of hosts, take off your shoes. But he appears as the angel of the Lord. That is what we call a Christophanes, preeminent incarnation of the Lord before Bethlehem. And we'll see this. One of the things when I go to Haiti is Bastia wants a a prophetic Bible study. So I'm just going to start in Genesis and just work my way through as far as we can get and just show that the volume of the book is all about Jesus. Where are we? We're in Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 9. 
And he calls him Lord. And this angel here does not rebuke Zechariah. What does that tell us? It tells us he is none other than the Lord. Now I'll give more evidence of that as we go on. But um, he said to him, in verse 10, And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, Well, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood, and I should just state that this is one of the titles of the Lord, the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now, this would have been true um, during this period of time. Um, Babylon, this is um, when this first was, the first part of this here is um, them returning. Um, And there really isn't war going on at this time. Babylon would have fallen about two years uh, since uh, them uh, coming back. And um, they're not going to be overtaken for quite a while. So the world ruling government of the world would have been the Medo-Persian Empire. And so they're conquering, but it's at peace as far as Jerusalem is concerned. Now remember Nehemiah's request that um, he came in before Ahasuerus, the king of, of, of Persia, in Sushan, the citadel. And um, he, was a, he was a cupbearer, wine bearer. And one thing that you couldn't be is down-faced before the king. You had to be happy before the king. You didn't want to bring the king down. And after all, you're the wine bearer. And you had to take a sip first, make sure it wasn't poison. But Nehemiah couldn't control himself. He had just heard about the news back in Bethlehem. I mean, in Jerusalem. Nothing's getting done. Everybody's discouraged. And so, you know, the king picked up on the body language and says, what's the problem and what do you want? And he doesn't hold back, and he says, nobody wants to go back to work. And um, what I've heard is that, you know, 50,000 or so went back, but nobody's doing anything. Um, They're intermarrying with uh, pagans, which they shouldn't have been. And they were caught up, and they weren't doing the work. And he says, what do you want? He says, I want money, authority, and papers, and your command, the, for, for safety's sake, so that when I do go back, the idea here being a, a, a sort of a peace over the world, not only when Nehemiah went back, did he go in peace, but the, there was Shambhalat and Tobiah, um, enemies of the Jews who were doing everything in their power to stop this work from happening trash talking, so on and so forth, just so nobody would work, discourage people. And um, Nehemiah comes back with the orders, with the money, with the paper. And um, um, dealt with Shambhal and Tobiah. 
So when we read here, behold, all the earth is at rest quietly. That's sort of the background. The Medes and the Persians are governing. Verse 12, excuse me then, the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judea, against which you were angry these 70 years? So again, the context is the 70 years is over and they're back and he's sent to encourage these discouraged workers. And the Lord answered uh, the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaiming, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. Now, in this context here, Jerusalem and Zion are simply one and the same. Zion is one of the seven mountains in Jerusalem, but here um, they are one and the same. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they help, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy, My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. It's going to be measured. And proclaiming, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through uh, prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and he will again choose Jerusalem. Now, what we have in here is something that you want to be sensitive to as we study through the scripture, a double prophecy. This was meant to be from Zechariah to the people. I'm going to raise you guys back up again. Things are going to be fine. And um, the temple's going to be rebuilt. And um, But it also has in view, like I said earlier, a picture of the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom that was promised since the time of David, of his kingdom being an everlasting kingdom, in contrast to the other kingdoms, world kingdoms, in this case the murder Persian, that's going to be overtaken by Alexander the Great and the Grecians. They all came, they all went. But the Lord is saying here, I'm going to, I'm going to come back and I'm going to have mercy on them. And I'm going to measure... Um, uh, the city of Jerusalem. The rider on the red horse, why red? Um, probably because of his blood, which would be shed to bring about this kingdom. As we're going to get to chapter 3, Joshua is going to be in the high priest in dirty garments that need to be cleansed. And uh, we know the only way that you can truly be cleansed is by blood. There is no, there is no forgiveness In ancient Judaism, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's why Jerusalem today, like never before, is wanting the temple to be rebuilt. And now what's happened just in the last couple weeks to show how current and close we are to the coming of the Lord is Jerusalem becoming a focal point of the world because we're going to move our embassy there, followed with, I think Guatemala says they're going to move theirs there, and others taking suit. Well, of course, this is like throwing gas on a fire in the Middle East because that's what the whole issue is about. 
I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. So we find uh, verses 7 through 17, the horses and the myrtle trees. The rider on the horse is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and in verses uh, um, 18, we... Um, well, let's just pick it up. It, there's a lot of applications here in light of this as it deals with um, how we spend our time. But I think I'm going to leave some of that for Sunday morning. So let's finish up chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, the four horns um, and the four craftsmen. And I'll just interpret right now these craftsmen as uh, carpenters. Um <clears throat> Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And so he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, carpenters. And I said, well, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen, or the carpenters, are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Well, obviously there's symbolism here. And I'm going to quote from Unger's Bible commentary on Zechariah, page 40 from that. And so I'm going to read directly from that commentary. In line with Daniel's great prophecies concerning the times of the Gentiles, three of the horns in turn and under the punitive hand of God become smiths, carpenters, while the fourth and the last horn is cast down by the worldwide kingdom set up by the returning Christ, coming to dash to pieces his enemies who are at the same time his people's enemies. Uh, that's Psalm 2. Psalm, Psalm 2 is basically why do the nations rage? Um, and they think that they can fight against the creator of the universe who's coming. And they actually gather together think they're going to fight against God. It says, he who sits in heaven will laugh and hold him in derision. I mean, that's it. Isn't that the craziest thing that man could ever think, that he's going to fight to defeat God? And yet, we do it all the time on a, on, a, on a spiritual level, but this is an actual event. I mean, you don't even get past Psalm 1. Psalm 2, you're talking about the Battle of Armageddon already. So what do we have here is a reoccurring, and when it's repeated so much, Again, the main point that I want to make is God is on schedule. He's, these prophecies have all come to pass precisely as Daniel laid them out in Daniel chapter 2. And um, we find the first horn here, Babylon, um, was cast down by the Medo-Persians, the second horn. The second horn, the Medo-Persians, accordingly in turn, becomes the first smith. And the second horn, the Medo-Persian, is cast down by the third horn and thus becomes the second smith. And the third horn, uh, Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire, in turn cast down. 
But then they were cast down by the fourth horn, which was Rome, which thus becomes the third smith, and the fourth horn, Rome, the most dreadful of all, does not become a smith, but it is revived ten kingdoms form in the last days is destroyed before the fourth. Now let's just put this in a chronological order. When we read the book of Daniel, it starts with Daniel. But preceding Daniel, you study any student of history, um, knows that you can only go so far back with your archaeology to Egypt. No, no further than that. Not without any credibility anyway. I mean, they'll find a, a, a tooth and say that it's 10 billion years old. And uh, then they build uh, a man around it that looked like a monkey. And um, making us monkeys, actually, <laughs> if you can believe it. And But if you're just a history student, the empires that have been world-dominating empires through history, Egypt, Assyria, Remember, Assyria fell in one night when they were going to attack Jerusalem. We're going to read here in verse chapter 2, verse 8, anybody who touches the apple of my eye, look out. That's how God looks at Jerusalem. And he says, anybody who touches the apple of my eye, look out. What was Sennacherib going to do with his 185,000 men? They were camped outside of Jerusalem. Isaiah goes to Hezekiah says, don't worry about it. Not one arrow is going to come over this wall. And yet there was 185,000 of them out there. But not one arrow came over the wall. They were coming against God's people without God disciplining him. God allowed it with Babylon only as an instrument to discipline them, to get their attention. Now that he's got it, 50,000 of them are back there. But again, what we just read with... Um, um, these craftsmen and these, these horsemen here. Let's finish verse 21. What are these coming to do? They are the, the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah, to scatter it. So, yes, it's symbolic. But all you have to do, again, I often say you will not understand the book of Revelation, which isn't taught anyway, unless you understand the book of Daniel. And now as we read the book of Zechariah, what do we have? We have repetition, different symbol, um, symbolism here, but all saying the same thing. Remember, this vision was one of ten or eight that he received, and um, we're on the second one here with the four horsemen and the four craftsmen. Speaking on those kingdoms, world-dominating kingdoms, that came against Jerusalem. All right. Chapter 1, we got cracked out. Chapter 2, we have the man with the measuring line, and let's go back uh, to verse 16 of chapter 1, and the surveyor's line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, "Uh, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was another angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to me, 
Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. What we have in view here is Babylon, and it says so in verse 7. Up, Zion, escape, you who dwell in the daughters of Babylon. Now remember, the majority of the people are still there. Now the prophet is speaking to them and saying that um, um, that they need to leave, depart, escape. But uh, let's just tie Old Testament and New Testament together here for a second. Measuring line. To measure what? To measure Jerusalem. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. If you're new, either watching live stream or new and you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, Daniel said that the things that he saw he wanted to know more about. And the Lord said, I'm sorry, it's shut up and it's sealed. Until, so everything that Daniel saw, he wanted he wanted to know, and the Lord told them, "No, they're shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Then many shall travel to and fro. Knowledge will increase. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand." For years, people would not take a literal view of the Book of Revelation because it's mostly about Israel. And for until 1948, there simply was no regathered nation of Israel. So man, leaning upon his own understanding, said, well, God must have meant it spiritually or allegorically. Leaning upon their own understanding and saying it's, it's um, symbolic, it's really a, a battle between light and darkness. Uh, but you had some hardliners, they were... A minority, they said, I don't know how God's going to do it, but somehow, some way, Israel is going to come back and become a nation. Now, if you were teaching that in the 1800s, you were crazy. And, um, but then the Zionist movement, Mary did a great job on Sunday morning, uh, starting with the Bellflower Declaration and working her way through the 17s, showing you what God can do in a, in a hundred year period of time. Now they're there, a nation born in a day. And everything that God said now is very relevant to the times in which we live. And uh, since I've been a Christian, watching it unfold, but not like the last couple of years. I mean, it's just exponential. Just take, taking off as we're watching it all come together. And to me, what's really sad when the Lord says, my people perish for lack of knowledge of my word. Gang, unless you're studying Zechariah, how many churches do you know teach through the book of Zechariah? How about Lamentations? Oh, yeah, let's dump into Lamentations. That sounds like a real joyful book. No, it's not, and it's not meant to be. Well, how about Judgment for Seven Years Captivity? No, I don't want to hear that either. Tell me something I want to hear. So we find in Revelation 11, again, verse 1, that I, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Well, in Zechariah, he's told with a plumb line, measuring line, to measure Jerusalem, the city. 
Here he's told just the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is in the outside of the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Now this is during the Great Tribulation period. We're obviously part of the peace proposal that brings about an answer for the cup of trembling that we call Jerusalem. He, he makes a peace plan, the Antichrist does, for seven years. And obviously, according to Second Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about it, that when you see the Antichrist going to the, into the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, um, as, as being part of yet something that's future. Well, we were just there. We were in the Temple Mount Institute, which is dedicated to the rebuilding of, of the temple. And uh, we saw the temple there. We saw the, the high priest's garments, his golden crown, solid gold, breastplate with the 12 stones in, the Urim and the Thum, um, the menorah standing outside by the, um, outside the, the wailing wall, higher up, five feet, five feet tall, the stretch of my arms wide, and uh, worth over a million dollars because of the gold that, that's in it. And so they're very serious about making the instruments. Um, I believe it's already prefabricated and just waiting for a green light. They went as far as to say, and I've been trying to get, about, get it out of these guys to admit it for years, that they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And when they finished the tour, they came right out and said it. We know the chamber where the Ark of the Covenant is hidden. Now, what I just said should be the top story on the CBS Evening News. I mean, just think what Indiana Jones would be going through right now. I know where it is. Rabbi Getz knows where it is. It's in a secret chamber that they know where the chamber is. It's been discovered underneath the Temple Mount. And what I say should just blow people's minds or have the internet all light up all over the world. They know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And yet, nothing is being said about it. Well, what happens someday if they just decide to bring it out? And there it is. In the movie, they call it the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. It's not in some warehouse in Washington, D.C. You didn't see the movie? (laughs) No, but it should be mind-boggling that I would even make such a statement. But I'm held accountable for what I say from the pulpit to the Lord. And I say it because I sat down and talked with Rabbi Richmond eyeball to eyeball who told me that Rabbi Getz is the one that absolutely told him. And I, she said, I said, you're a rabbi? I'm a pastor? You look me in the eye and tell me that again. So I've known, I've known about it for years. And, but they wouldn't, for years they wouldn't talk about it in the Temple Mount Institute. All that to say this, is there going to be a temple? Yeah, they're going to measure it. But part of it is not going to be measured. It's being given to Gentiles. Well, that's interesting. And it makes sense. Just think about it. If the number one problem from last Sunday's study, a couple of trembling, is Jerusalem, and how do you find peace with what's going on right now, especially with the threat from Erdogan, the president of Turkey, saying, because of what you just did, that's a red line, we're going to destroy the Jews. 
So somebody's got to come up with answers. And they're just being set up for the Antichrist right now. The, the people who are not saved that are Jews in Israel are being set up big time. Because the peace treaty, according to Daniel 9, verse 27, will be signed, the temple will be built. But he's going to break the treaty in the middle of the week. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then in parentheses, whosoever reads, let him understand. What does that mean? You better be a good student of the book of Daniel. And understand what Daniel is saying here. Then run. Because that's when the Antichrist breaks the peace covenant and goes now to annihilate the rest of the people uh, that are Jewish. And uh, that's the only card he's got really left to play. So Zechariah talks about measuring the city of Jerusalem. And now John is told to measure the altar in the temple, but not the outer court. I don't know, speculation. Is it possible that the Dome of the Rock could coexist next to the temple and uh, make Jerusalem an international city? Now, we would say, yeah, that's possible. But remember, we're not here during this period of time. In Second Thessalonians, when you read it all, we're the restraining force right now. We're the ones that um, say we have a problem with the transgender agenda in our school system. And we're saying something about it. But what if you weren't here to say anything about it? Well, then all hell breaks, literally breaks loose. No restraining force. You know, just go ahead and do whatever you want to. All roads are leading to Rome. And there will be a vacuum in this world when the church is raptured. And the only place, uh, that's what the ecumenical movement is all about today. That's why I have problems with Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and anybody that wants to get in bed with the Pope or Roman Catholicism. And there's TV commercials. I saw one just, just yesterday, come on home. Come on home. And it was about the Roman Catholic Church. And so we have what used to be good Bible-believing churches saying, look out. That's a warning sign. That's a red flag. Don't go there. Now it's, it's wide open. But imagine the few that are warning and saying, these are happening right before our eyes, literally. And who's saying anything about it? Like I said earlier, what I just said should have blown every person's mind from here to Canada and farther on. And that it should be making news or somebody should have some investigating reporting, doing some interviewing <laughs> with the rabbis near the Temple Mount. Boy, did I get off on a sidetrack there. <laughs> Might not even get through chapter 3. Anyway, I bring you here because here it's measured also. So let's go back to Zechariah. Chapter 2. Escape you who dwell in the daughters of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he set me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You can take, if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 12:3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse you who curse you. Anti-Semitism is on a rise big time, especially in Paris and France. 
in Europe. And, um, and here the Lord says who the apple of his eye is. It's a phrase we still use today. A lot of the one-liners. I like the handwriting's on the wall. We know what's going to happen. Well, it just comes out of Daniel. Well, you're the apple of my eye. Well, you're talking to your sweetie. Where did it come from? Well, it comes from Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 8. And he who looks, just, just think of, uh, uh, of uh, the president of Turkey and his threats because of us moving our embassy to Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to take you guys out, you Jews. I'm coming after you. That was a red line. Well, you're messing. The Lord says, you're in trouble, anybody who touches the apple of my eye. For surely I'll shake my hand against them, and they will become spoiled for their servants. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has set me. Sing and rejoice, our daughters of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I would like to repeat that 100 times. I am coming. I am coming. And I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Now here we're clearly um, going, and here again, double prophecy, going into the millennial age. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall uh, become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. This is also talked about in Isaiah, where he calls up his people and he says, Rest here for a little while until the indignation is past. For the Lord goes forth to fight against those nations that are coming against his people. Well, let's see if we can make it through. Again, these last verses clearly talks about God's plans. History, just as the Bible says, it happened. Exactly. So that gives me great confidence that God has a plan for his own kingdom. And that's what we're really to be preoccupied in thinking about. Now we're introduced to what um, uh, we're woefully unaware of and unequipped of in America, and that's the reality of a person who's called the devil, Lucifer, Satan, and his schemes and his plans. And we pick it up in verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Now this is not to be confused with Joshua who took Jericho. This is a high priest at that time um, that would have been uh, performing in uh, the temple. But remember, the temple isn't done yet. Standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, so the the setting is the Lord putting Satan in his place, doing exactly what Michael the archangel said to him in the book of Jude, which is just one chapter. It said that uh, Michael um, responded to him, 
by as they were fighting, he just says, the Lord rebuke you. And he just left it at that. And Joshua, um, and verse 3, now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel, or the Lord. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now, only the Lord can say this. The Lord forgave sin before he died on a cross. You know that? Remember the four guys that brought the guy on a bed who couldn't walk? And the crowds were so big they had to cut a hole in the ceiling and let him down through the hole. And his buddies wanted him to be able to walk again. And so the Lord looks down at him and interrupted his Bible study and, and said, what do you guys want? And, and he said, okay, your sins are forgiven. And the buddies look at each other. That's, that's not why we're here. We want my friend to walk again. And he says, ask you a question. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Well, how so? Well, how do you know? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But then he says, but just so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, pick up your bed and go home. The guy gets up, picks up his bed and go home. What was the point he was trying to make? The Son of Man can forgive sins before he even died on the cross. And in this case here, he's cleansing Joshua. His garments are filthy indicating where it says our righteousness on your best day are as filthy rags. And the word there, I was reading McGee on this today, it said the wording is actually what's in your baby's diaper when you're changing it. That's the more accurate translation to your good deeds. So, so much for your good deeds. And I said, let me put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways, if you keep my command, then you will also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place to walk among these who stand there. You know, of course, the enemy did not want this to happen. And he was trying to do the same thing that he did in Job, where one day they came, the the sons, or the angels came before the Lord, and it says, and Lucifer was there with them. And so the Lord says, where you been? Oh, going to and fro, walking over the face of the earth. We just read that earlier here. Um, As these angels, these watchers here, were doing the same thing. They were walking to and fro over the face. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10. These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the whole earth. And he said, well, have you seen my servant Job? None like him. Um, He's a man after my heart. He seeks me, prays for his kids every morning, has his devotions, and he walks up right before me. And then the challenge and well, why shouldn't he? You bless the guy so much, he's not going to say anything negative against you. Let me at him. And this is what Satan's doing here. 
Let me, let me ask this guy, Joshua the high priest. Why? Because he was a high priest. Who did he want in the New Testament? He wanted Peter. Why? Well, Peter was sort of the spokesman, sometimes out of, <laughs> not too tactfully, but nonetheless, he was a spokesman for, for the disciples. And so the Lord goes up to Peter one day and says, Satan has asked for you. That's what's going on here. He's asking and trying to thwart the work of God. And the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. In Peter's case, he just said, but don't worry about it, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail you. And so now what I like to think of is difficult times where your emotions dictate your faith. And um, this is how your faith grows because we are a culture that is mostly motivated by emotions and feelings. And how do you feel today? And even if you're having a, a good day, what do you say? How are you doing? What do you say? Oh, fine. Okay. And you're lying between your teeth because you're having a rotten day. <laughs> and we dictate how our day is going by how we feel. When the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. So I'm having a bad day, but my Bible says in Romans 8.28 that he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's why Job could say after he went through the ringer, losing seven sons and ten daughters, and his wife saying, curse God and die. And he said, quiet wife, are we only going to receive good things from the Lord and not hard days? And he says, naked I came, naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now how can you keep down a guy with that attitude? When it's always the Lord is... I don't know what's going on right here, but it doesn't matter because the Lord does. And as long as I'm abiding in him, no matter what you go through, he's going to somehow, some way, work it to good. Well, Dwight, you don't, know the, you don't know what's going on in my life right now. No, I don't. And I don't pretend to, to know or, or want to know. Those things are, I don't know your heart. You don't know mine. This is the one place where Matthew 7, 7 is kept in context. It says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, many times, you or I will be accused if I point out a false teacher or a guy who's in it for the buck. I was doing my emails this morning, I was going through it, and sometimes on the side, they have a little thing you can click on. Well, it said, Joel Olstein's house. <laughs> well, that got my attention. I wanted to see it. And I hate it because they make you click on at least 20 or 30 different ones before you can get to where Joel Osteen's house is. So I said, enough of this. I just Googled it. <laughs> he lives in Houston, and his house is worth $10.5 million. And it had a picture of it there. And I wonder, what's this guy into it for? What's his motive? So when I say that, he only talks about what's good for you. He doesn't present the whole gospel. And I call that false teaching. I call that dangerous teaching. And then people will say, oh, you're just judging. You shouldn't judge. No. It goes on to say that the spiritual man judges everything. You see, what I don't know is Jerry's heart. Jerry, what's in your heart? What's really in your heart, Jerry? I don't know. 
And I'm not, uh, and that's not my job to find out. Because uh, I don't know why people do what they do. Um, so false doctrine, absolutely. Point it out, correct it. Paul said, I, 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 I didn't cease to warn you day and night with tears for three solid years that after my departure, wolves are going to come in not sparing the flock. What does that mean? Well, you become merchandise. You become a place where you can become a monetary benefit to that particular church or whatever. And that's, um, um, that's what Lucifer was doing here. Here we have spiritual warfare going on, and we don't even recognize it. And the Lord says, but he's going to cleanse him, and he does. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways. And it's the same with, with you and I. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And God does want to bless you, but it might not be the type of blessing that you, you, you think. Um, verse 8, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for there are wondrous, a wondrous sign. For behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. Now, what's funny about this word here? It's all in capital letters. Is it in your Bible? It should be. Um, quickly, I've got to wrap this thing up. Let me just go to two scriptures. Go to Isaiah 11, verse 1, real quick. Just so that we can prove that the rider on the red horse was Jesus. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, Then shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If you count them up, there's seven there. But the branch is who? The branch is Jesus. Go to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Who is the branch? The branch is none other than the guy in the red horse that allowed himself to be called Lord. And no angel would ever have the audacity to allow that to happen. All right, we got one more verse tonight. As we make it through three, I knew I'd never make it through four. For behold, I will send forth my servant the branch, and from the stone which I have laid before Joshua. Now, um, I'm running out of time, but if you're doing cross-references here, the stone is none other than the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then in Daniel chapter 2, there was a stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that came out of nowhere, remember? And it smote the image. What, what was the image? All these other world empires from Babylon on up to the, the last one, the revived Roman Empire that's coming that the Antichrist is going to be ruling over. But that stone cut without hands is the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And it's, that's what establishes the stone becomes a great mountain and a kingdom. And in a little insight here, behold, I will engrave um, upon the stones are seven eyes. If you're taking notes, you, you might want to write down um, Revelation chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Oh, heck. I'm just going to read it quickly to you. Uh, Revelations 4, this is John in heaven. Verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightning, thunders, and voices, and there were seven lamps and fires burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, which we read about in Isaiah, uh, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of, of grass, glass like crystal. And then the living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So as we finish our introduction in the first three chapters, what we have is a repeat of um, encouraging the people to stay in there, hang in there. The Lord has his plan. Everything he talked about that we look back on has been fulfilled. And he says here that I will remove the iniquity of that land in a day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, a a chapter ending with the promise of the millennium. So the kingdom age, God has plans of his own. It's not about my kingdom come, but thy kingdom come. And I guess the exhortation would be, what are you investing in? Um, You can invest in one thing that can have rewards that will last into all of eternity. Or you can put your eggs in the basket here. And I've done enough funerals to know that when a person dies, he doesn't take anything with him. It's all left behind, at least the worldly stuff. So, Colossians 3.1, if you're born again, set your sights on things that are above and not on the earth. And believe me, in this day and age, especially this time of the year, where in most corporations and businesses, one-third of making or breaking it is all dependent upon the last couple of weeks that we went through. And um, my wife and I refuse to get caught up in it all. I bought, I bought her a pair of sock slippers, the number 17 from the Packers. And I thought I overdid it with that. <laughs> Let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we get into Zechariah, uh, we thank you that your word brings such soundness because it sounds to us as we get into this book that it's already over with. And the fact of the matter is, from your point of view, it is because there is no time in eternity. It's a done deal. It's already done. And so as we live it out day by day, Lord, help us seek first your kingdom and help us invest in those things that are going to bring about eternal reward so that when we stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ, we can have something to show for the time that we spent on this planet and that it would count for eternity. Lord, I pray for the rest of our studies in Zechariah and... um, Um, We just are grateful for your word, Lord, and the soundness that it does bring to us knowing that you have your own plans and purposes. Help us, Lord, 
look to have our lives line up with your plans and not the other way around. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, Amen.